If you would, take out your Bibles once again and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11, where we'll be for the next few minutes. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Please join me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithful promise to be with and for your people, to provide for our every need. And we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you that it is not just uh, words on a piece of paper that we can read, but it is your very breath that you have breathed out. And Father, we know that in your word we learn what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people. And so, Father, I pray that you would Open our eyes to see your truth, open our ears to hear your truth, open our minds to understand your truth, and open our hearts um, to um, receive your truth, and indeed strengthen our hands and feet that we may walk in a manner pleasing to you, trusting in Jesus. Father, may your word before us now be our rule, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Here we are at number 44 in our series, Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. Indeed, there remains great confusion and ignorance as to who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how someone should respond to the person and work of Jesus. We see this now in the first century, but we also see it all around us here in the 21st century. And so my hope and prayer is as we spend time together in God's Word, answering those three questions of Mark's shortest catechism, uh, we will grow to understand uh, God's Word and grow in love for Jesus and grow in the desire and the ability to put His Word into practice. Think with me about your most recent car trip away from home, a vacation Have you ever been disappointed while on a vacation by your choice of a restaurant? You know, you saw the sign and you saw the outward appearance. And so you decided, hey, this is where we're going to stop and eat dinner. However, you ended up being disappointed by the quality of the service and the taste of food. You didn't find what you were looking for and you didn't get what you expected to get, that being good food and good service. I think we've all been there, right? Disappointed that the, uh, the restaurant didn't match our expectations. Well, we've got something like that taking place here in our text as Jesus visits the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus visits the temple and he leaves rather disappointed because he found the appearance of religion but not the reality of true religion. He observed a form of faith but not the content of faith. In other words, Jesus saw the sign but he didn't see the substance. Well, where are we in Mark? Mark is 16 chapters as you know divided pretty much equally. And in chapters 1 through 8, we learn mostly who Jesus is. And in chapters 8 through the end, we learn what did Jesus come to do. And 
in the end of chapter 8, we see both a confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ, but we also see an immediate call to discipleship as Jesus calls those to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. Now, chapters 11 through 16 cover only really roughly a week in the life of his life, but it consumes, notice, nearly a third of Mark's gospel. And gospels are not biographies per se. The gospel writers are writing a gospel. They have a purpose, and their purpose is to get to the heart of Jesus' work, his death. All four gospels can therefore be understood as passion or death narratives with extended introductions. Chapter 11 now begins this last chapter in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's the climax and fulfillment, not simply the end. Now, as we've been seeing since chapter 1, Mark has already declared Jesus to be the King, the promised and long-awaited Messiah who has come to bring with him the kingdom of God. And we saw that in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. And so in our text this morning, we will see Mark telling us more about King Jesus, as we will see the king entering Jerusalem, the king judging the temple, and the king offering forgiveness. Let's take a look first now at the king enters Jerusalem, verses 1 through 11. Do you remember that Jesus for three times in chapter 8, 9, and 10 has has predicted his death, his betrayal, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection? And in chapter 10, he got very specific. We are going up to Jerusalem for me to suffer and to die. And now they're making the pilgrimage into Jerusalem for Passover. It's about 18 miles, as we remembered, from Jericho into Jerusalem. And Jesus is not going to walk these last few miles, but rather ride. Many commentators have wondered, wow, is this cult, this donkey, supernatural knowledge of Jesus? Or has he just made prior arrangements? And it's interesting, as you read commentaries, you can see like who's a believer and who's not a believer as you read these explanations for what's taking place. Well, what is Mark telling us about Jesus as he narrates the return of the king to Jerusalem? Think with me again about Mark's shortest catechism. The first question, who is Jesus? Well, we see in verses 2 through 7, he is the king of peace. Israel's messianic king is coming to Jerusalem, riding on the colt of a donkey. And we heard in Zechariah chapter 9, This coming one would have salvation. He would be humble and he shall speak peace to the nations. We see also that Jesus is the king of David's line. The crowds respond and they identify Jesus as that long expected one to come. And yet they are still expecting at this time a political military ruler to throw off the Roman rule of the day. But we also see that Jesus is the king of redemption. He's a redeemer king. We heard in Psalm 118, Hosanna. A little bit of Hebrew and Aramaic meaning save. Save us. Save us now. And it's almost like 
the expression praise the Lord has yet, doesn't, it's not a command anymore. Praise the Lord is just an expression. And here it's the people's expression, Hosanna. Even though literally it's going to mean save us. Save us now. It is an expression of praise, of recognition. Again, people are expecting a political and military salvation. And yet Jesus, as Mark has been showing, is coming to bring a complete salvation of soul and body. The crowd most likely thinks he's coming to save the Jews, but Jesus knows he is the Savior for the world. They are thinking that salvation is for the good and the strong, and yet Jesus is going to show salvation through sacrifice for the repentant and the weak. Well, what else does these first few verses of chapter 11, the king entering Jerusalem, what else do we learn? What else do we learn about Jesus? We see Jesus' sovereignty. Jesus is entering Jerusalem on his own terms. He is in total control of events. Notice in this, these verses, Mark's great detail, there is precise fulfillment. There is precise obedience Notice also not only Jesus' sovereignty, but his humility. He comes not on a war horse, but a donkey. Here he's bringing peace, not war. This is a different conception of greatness and power that Jesus is bringing. And here is a, an enacted parable, a remarkable self-disclosure. Jesus is saying, I am the king who comes in weakness, therefore my kingdom is only entered through repentance and admitting your need. As we've seen Mark show us, Jesus is teaching his disciples that over and over and over again. Notice also that Jesus' amazing knowledge and commitment to the Scriptures. His life was shaped by a total confidence in and knowledge of the Scriptures. He brought every part of his life and faced everything in his life through God's Word. It's amazing sometimes to read through the Gospel of John and see Jesus' submission to the Word of his Father. It's an amazing example. It's an amazing challenge. Jesus himself completely trusted these prophecies about him. And he followed the scriptures. And in the end, we cannot follow Jesus without also adopting his loyalty to the Bible. His loyalty to God's word. How are you doing when it comes to following Jesus? in the area of your view of God's word? Are you like Jesus seeking to place your entire life under God's word? Is your food as it was for Jesus to do the will of your heavenly father? Look at verse 11, the transition. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Where does he go first? He goes to the temple and he takes a look around. Somewhat of an anticlimax, isn't it, after this triumphal entry into Jerusalem? And yet, as we will see, it is the quiet before the storm. For we will see not only in our passage does Mark show us the king entering Jerusalem, but the king judging the temple. 
Here we're going to see a typical Markin sandwich where he, he takes two things and he, and he brings them together and he structures his material with a sandwich because the material in the middle is the cleansing of the temple in verses 15 through 19 and it interprets and is interpreted by the material which surrounds it which is the cursing of the fig tree that we see in verses 12 through 14 and also 20 through 21. The fig tree is a visible object lesson, and it clearly represents something else. Jesus' actions regarding the fig tree represent what he is doing in and with the temple. Those of you that may know your Old Testaments may know that a fig tree was a metaphor, a, a picture for Israel. We see that in the major prophets and in the minor prophets, Israel being referred to as a fig tree. Well, Jesus, we see in our passage, sees the fig tree. He is hungry. He sees the leaves and he expects fruit. But because there is no fruit, he curses the tree. Well, that's what's on the outside of the sandwich. Let's go to the inside, the temple. When you see and hear the temple, you think huge Old Testament significance. Because now Jesus has not only entered Jerusalem, the focal point of Jewish life, but he's also now entered the temple, the focal point of religious life. The temple was the symbolic dwelling place of God on earth where sacrifices and prayers were offered to God. Here's a quick history of the temple. Remember in the wilderness, there was no temple but a tabernacle that had to get packed up and moved every time God's people moved closer and closer to the promised land as they wandered in the wilderness. And David, King David, had it in his mind to build a temple for God, a permanent dwelling place as it were. But remember, God said, no, David, you're not the one to do it. Your son, Solomon, will do it. And Solomon built a temple that in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 56, that temple was referred to as a house of prayer for all nations, among many things. But that was a designation of the temple. And that temple was destroyed at the time of the exile, but rebuilt at the time of God's people's return. Even though that rebuilt temple didn't compare with the old temple, nor in Ezekiel's vision of a temple, it nonetheless was magnificent and rivaled anything that Greece or Rome or Egypt built. Jesus enters the temple. Back in 1968, Motown up in Detroit, that record label, released a song by Shorty Long, and here it was. Hear ye, hear ye, the court's in session, the court's in session now. Here comes the judge. Here comes the judge. Here comes the judge into the temple. Those of you that were listening close to Malachi chapter 3 can see now in this action of Jesus the fulfilling of those words of the prophet Malachi. The king. The judge is entering his temple. Back to the fig tree. Jesus observed leaves and therefore he expected fruit. 
In the Old Testament, God compared Israel to a fig tree and looked for fruit. But what evidence did Jesus find? He found a lack of fruit. And what did Jesus find in the temple? He found commerce. Not right or wrong in and of itself, but the problem was it was being abused. Here, there are leaves on the fig tree, but there is no fruit. There's no prayer going on. There's the prevention because of the commerce, because of the money changing that needed to be done in order to be able to contribute the temple tax with a coin that didn't have a Roman um, ruler's um, in, uh, uh, portrait on it. There had to be that. People needed offerings for the temple. There had to be the sale. But here, the commerce is in particular preventing the Gentiles from coming in and seeking God. Again, back to Isaiah 56, a house of prayer for all peoples. And Jesus is pretty much quoting Jeremiah 7. Has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Earlier, in our Sunday school lesson on the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, we saw how we in so many ways can rob God of his glory. We can steal his glory. And this is what's taking place. There is thievery going on and robbery going on in the temple courts. Remember the song, the judge, the courts in session, the courts in session, here comes the judge. And the judge passes a sentence. He drives out the merchants. He overturns the tables. And get this. This temple area, this courtyard for the Gentiles was being used as a shortcut. You know, to get from point A and B. The closest is to cut through the temple courtyard. Jesus blocks the shortcut. The sentence is passed And not only that, but guilt is confirmed. Look with me at verse 18. What do we read in verse 18? And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they had feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. That's not new. We've read that before of how the religious leaders... And the Herodians, the Pharisees and the Herodians plotted together as to how to destroy Jesus. Because Jesus amazingly can unite foes against him. What do we learn about Jesus? Not only who he is, but also what he came to do. First, we see in this the authority and majesty of Jesus as Lord as well as Savior. The only person who has the right to rearrange the furniture in a house is who? The owner. The owner of the house. How would you guys like it if somebody, a house guest, comes over to your house and just like we've got house guests and we went away and they stayed in our house and we come back and you rearranged our furniture? Not good. Not good. No, they didn't do that. But had they done that, That would have been wrong. Only the owner of the house has the right to rearrange the furniture and Jesus is displaying his divine authority and his divine identity. Second, 
Not only does it show Jesus' authority and majesty, it shows us that Jesus hated religion that was only concerned with external rituals rather than the internal realities like prayer and devotion. Because you see, this description of the temple could have been he went in and he observed people pray. He went in and he observed Jews telling Gentiles about the one true and living God. He could have gone in and seen men and women on their face confessing their sin, but that's not what he saw. He saw external rituals rather than internal realities. Jesus here is also judging parochial religion, only concerned with themselves, those on the inside, not with those on the outside. Remember, God calls us in, but he also sends us out to be a light to the nations as we saw Jesus' work in Isaiah in the servant songs of the Messiah. And as we often do in a confession or a call to worship that we recognize that he's the Lord of the nations, And all the nations will come to him. And we also see Jesus is a man of power. Meek and mild Jesus coming in on a donkey, on a colt of a donkey, is also absolutely ferocious, overturning tables, blocking the way. And notice how much help Jesus had? None. Some things only Jesus can do, and he's doing this in the temple. He's a man of power. Well, remember that Scripture is like a window. We've been seeing who God is, who Jesus is, but we also know that Scripture is a mirror that we can also look into and see ourselves. What do we learn about ourselves? Is there fruit? In our lives? Is there the visible outgrowth of real faith in the heart? The fruit of the Spirit is a gift of God and it's an eternal work that displays itself outwardly love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self control. An inward work of the heart that's displayed and seen outwardly. We also see the image of leaves. They may refer to things, that many things that can, be, that can appear to be signs of real belief but can grow without real heart change. Things done in the power of the flesh. Those of you that have been walking with Jesus for a number of years, you know that for a time you can make things happen in your own strength, in your own wisdom. You can give the appearance of godliness but you can lack the power because it's just all you. This should show us that it's quite evident that we can be very, very busy in the church, very, very busy with religious activities without real heart change. When Jesus comes to live in us, which his scriptures make clear he does, he has the right to rearrange the furniture of our life. I remember again, I'll never forget it, my friend and I were sitting at the big boy down in Covington, 
And he said, you know, when I run up against God's word and I look at my life, he said, one of us has to change. I'm afraid a lot of us spend energy to try to change God's word rather than humbly asking the Lord to help us change in accordance with his word by the power of his spirit. And notice also, if Jesus is concerned about the nations, as we hear again and again through our calls to worship, the question has to be asked, are we concerned about the nations? It's on God's heart. Is it on our heart? This passage is a warning that if we reject his mercy as Bartimaeus didn't reject his mercy. If we reject his mercy, then there's no other hope. And yet there is hope because the king who entered Jerusalem, who judged the temple, is also the king who offers forgiveness. Look with me at verses 22 through 25. Now, how are these verses connected to what has come before? Good question. Sadly, these verses are often taken out of context in order to teach a particular view of prayer. My friends, this is pastorally disastrous and leads to despairing, disillusioned Christians. This text isn't a general piece of teaching on the nature of prayer. In its context, it must have to do with deliverance from the judgment with, that Jesus has just proclaimed on unbelieving Israel. Back to looking at the fig tree, Peter was shocked. Peter's starting to understand if the temple and the sacrificial system go, how would anyone be ransomed? How would anyone be atoned for? How could anyone get into the kingdom of God if Israel could not get in? Well, verses 22 and 25 are Jesus' answer to that question and describe the right response to the prospect of judgment. The fruit which the temple, for all of its religious leaves, lacked. Well, what is it? What is the fruit? It's believing prayer for our own salvation and that of the prayer. Let's take a look now at faith, prayer, and forgiveness once again, Jesus is drawing our attention to one thing, faith. Did you think Mark got it wrong? Jesus got it wrong going from 21 to 22? And Jesus answered them, have faith in God? In Mark, faith is the way to enter the kingdom, and a lack of faith in Jesus is the way to stay out and be kept out of the kingdom. Here is encouragement to Peter to have faith in God because that must be the way to avoid the judgment, to be part of the kingdom. Now last week, remember Bartimaeus, blind beggar Bartimaeus. And recall that as we looked at that text, we saw that faith is knowledge, faith is active trust and confidence, and faith is known by its fruit. Faith bears fruit. And for Bartimaeus... What was it? It was following Jesus on the way. Well, what did Bartimaeus pray for? Well, you might rightly say 
when Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus, uh, Bartimaeus said, I want to see. I want to have my sight regained. But what was his first prayer? What was his heart of heart prayers? Jesus, son of David, have mercy. He prayed for mercy. He prayed for mercy. Did Bartimaeus have blind faith? Absolutely not. His eyes of faith were opened. Because you see, the fruit of faith is prayer. Faith expresses itself through action. And here, the action of praying. This faithful prayer for deliverance will mean that we admit that we are sinners in need of forgiveness and forgive others. What did Bartimaeus pray for? Mercy. He wanted his eyes then to be opened. And what is the fruit of faith? It's not just prayer, but it's forgiveness. Because those of you who have come to faith in Christ, what has been your leading prayer? What has been the prayer that's the entry gate? Father, forgive me. Forgive me. It's the leading prayer. It's the sign of faith. The sign of being forgiven by God is being able to forgive others. Years ago, Michelle and I knew someone and she was having a hard time with uh, another member of our church and she said, I will never forgive him. I am not able to. To forgive him. Anybody ever heard those words? So the response that this woman got, we pray that it was gentle, and I believe it was, was you say you cannot forgive someone. Well, how do you know you have been forgiven? My friends, those who have forgive, been forgiven by God for their huge sin. can forgive others for the relatively little sins against us. Fig trees and the temple. What a combination of images in our text. Temple worship in this day was a glaring example of leaves without fruit or form without content. Our text presents a call to examine our lives, to inspect this temple. That is, inspect ourselves. In the Navy, if I learned one thing, it was this. You get what you inspect, not what you expect. Oh, had that been true in my early days, I would have saved myself a lot of trouble. Jesus saw leaves and therefore he expected to find fruit, but upon inspection, he didn't find any. So take some time, maybe later today or tomorrow, and ask these questions. Do I honor God with my lips, but my heart, my life is far from Him? Do I have the form of religion, but not the power of true religion? Because Paul writes Timothy about people having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Do I have the appearance of faith, but not the reality? Now, I don't know if you caught this, but bearing fruit here is impossible. Look at verse 13, the second half. He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, wait a minute. 
Jesus is blaming the fig tree for not having figs when it's not the season for figs? This is difficult to understand. And it requires a little bit of knowledge of fig trees that there were really two fruit seasons. One with a little fruit early in the season and later the mature ripe fruit. Most likely it's this early season that Jesus nonetheless expected this this precursor fruit, but he didn't see it. Bearing fruit is impossible apart from Jesus. And that's his point to his disciples. It's his point to us. That's where Jesus wants his disciples then. That's where Mark wants his readers then and now to understand the impossibility of salvation apart from him. Recall Jesus' words and his conversion in the conversion, excuse me, in the conversation with the father of the boy with the unclean spirit. Remember, Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And do you remember the response of the father? I believe, help my unbelief. My friends, is that the cry of your heart today? I believe, help my unbelief. And then recall Jesus' answer to the question of his disciples after he had spoke about how it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, his disciples rightly said, then who can be saved? And Jesus says this, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Do you believe these words of Jesus? Are you right now casting yourself on the mercy of God? My friends, may God be pleased to build in our lives the inward reality that not only matches the outward appearance, but exceeds it. May the Son of Man, when He returns, not riding on a colt, but riding on a white horse, Will the Son of Man, when He returns, be pleased to find faith on earth in the lives of those who have cried out for mercy? May we indeed get what we expect when it comes to the promises of God as we remember these words of Jesus to His disciples the night before His death. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that recounts the King returning to Jerusalem, judging the temple, and yet offering a way of escape from the coming judgment. Father, we thank you that There is an offer of forgiveness to all of those who humble themselves and admit their need 
of mercy. Admit that they do not want to get what they deserve. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to create and continue to build the inward life of faith in us. Father, we want the outward appearance to be reflective of the inward reality. Father, we want the inward reality here amongst all of us at Grace and Peace to be a people who are desperately dependent upon you, who love you, who love one another and who forgive one another because that we have been forgiven by you. Oh, Father, enable us to bear the fruit of your spirit before a watching world that's lost and dying without Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.